This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. It's Madam Adams, Cindy Adams from the New York Post. If you want to, and even if you don't want to, you can read me Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the New York Post. Listen, I think maybe when it comes to the United States of America, I'm a dinosaur. I remember it from the early days when we could leave our doors open, when we had respect for elders, when we were patriotic. I remember America when it was the most glorious nation on earth. And as far as I'm concerned, it always will be. And just because I'm in the mood, I'm going to tell you about something I just read. I just read George Washington's farewell to the people of the United States. It was when he left office. It was 17, September 17, 1796. And what he said was, this is in part because it's a very long speech and I'm only giving you parts that I took out. He said, I have the consolation to believe that while choice and prudence invite me to quit the political scene, patriotism does not forbid it. The vicissitudes of fortune offer discouraging situations in which, not infrequently, want of success has countenanced the spirit of criticism. It sort of reminds us of today. We go on. He mentions, quote, This glorious country, watch for its preservation with jealous anxiety, discounting whatever may suggest even a suspicion that it can in any event be abandoned, and indignantly frowning upon the first dawning of every attempt to alienate any portion of our country from the rest, or enfeeble the sacred ties which now link together the various parts. I continue on with George Washington's letter. Citizens, by birth a choice, the country has a right to concentrate your affections. The name of America must always exalt the just pride of patriotism. There will always be reason to distrust the patriotism of those who in any quarter may endeavor to weaken its hands. Be deaf to those advisers who would sever them from their brethren and connect them with aliens. Continues George Washington in his letter, quote, a government for the whole is indispensable. No alliances, however strict, between the parts can be an adequate substitute. The unity of our government, which constitutes you one people, is now dear to you. It is justly so, for it is a main pillar in the edifice of your real independence of your safety, of your prosperity, of that very liberty which you so highly prize. 
That is the end of what I am quoting. It is a long letter in his farewell to the presidency of the United States of America. I just tell anyone listening, please pay attention, America. Pay attention. Now I think I'm going to tell you about a guy called Larry Amorose, who you don't know. He was away from New York for 11 years. For the times that he was here, he went to the long-ago coffee street cart. He'd once patronized here daily for two years when he worked in television. Two years, every day, he went to the same coffee cart. But he has been away from New York 11 years. He just came in last week. And when he came to the same cart, before he made his order, the old-time coffee pourer said, I know, I know, two coffees, cream, no sugar, buttered roll. That could be only in New York, kids, only in New York. And now, now that I have spoken of America, let me speak about New York. New York, which I also love. New York was my home. I don't want to see anything happen to New York the greatest city on earth, capital of the world, center of civilization's gravity. We're turning into Al Capone's Chicago. We're number one in terms of filming movies and television. So many stars are relocating here from moviedom's wallow wood that nobody stops to gaze at them anymore. Locals just continue crossing against the light, dodging bicycles, sleeping on the street, cursing construction, triple parking, bitching about the cost, bitching about the garbage, bitching about the rent, bitching about our mayor, buying coffee off the carts, and elbowing whoever is in our way. Where else you want to live? Wichita, nice little condo in Yuma. How about Iraq, Afghanistan, Yugoslavia, downtown Idaho? Listen, our state's the home of one-namers like Bloomberg, Jackman, Scorsese, Seinfeld, Ivana, Gaga, Madonna, Whoopi, Hillary who lives a little outside the city, but is here with her vault. Where Jackie lived, where Leona lived, where Roosevelt lived, where Joan Rivers lived, where George Washington lived. We got us, you ready? We got us the Rockaways, the Hamptons, the Catskills, the Adirondacks, the openings, the after parties. We got the cobblestones, the marble statues, the traffic. We got Fifth Avenue, Park Avenue, Broadway, Central Park, MoMA, USA's largest museum, the Met. Forget Kichigumi. We got Atlantic Ocean, the Hudson, the East River, Niagara Falls, a big puddle in front of my building, which I don't like to mention, but it's there. Natural History Museum, the Bronx Zoo, Diamond Center, Chinatown, Little Italy. The Bronx is up and the battery's down. We got the UN. Wait a minute, what else we got? We got Wall Street, 
Metropolitan Museum of Art, the New York Post, the Aquarium, Coney Island, Freedom Tower, Atlantic Ocean, the 9-11 Museum, St. Pat's. We got the biggest synagogue, Temple Emmanuel. We got Greenwich Village, NYU, Columbia, CCNY, Fordham, etc. We got in New York the Skyline, the Highline, the Triborough, Chelsea Market, Brooklyn Bridge, Brooklyn Academy of Music, Trinity Church, Ellis Island, Restaurant Row, France's Tavern, where George Washington dined. We got 24,000 entertainment venues. How about we also got Grant's Tomb, the Planetarium, the Charging Bull, Five Burrows, Wallman Rink, Yankee Stadium, Fashion Institute. We got West, Hel West Point, Bear Mountain, the Docks, the Garment Center, the Horse and Buggy Carriages, Helicopter Taxis, Coney Island, Long Island, Ellis Island, Rikers Island, Staten Island, the Bowery, Central Park South, Central Park West, the Rock Rink, the Knicks, Lake George, Waldorf, St. Regis, Plaza, 9 by 12 enlargement of our mayor on every television station. We got the lake with rowboats, food pushcarts, clothing pushcarts. We got Fifth Avenue. We got Atlantic City, East River, Hudson River, Saks, Rock Center, Empire State Building. New York City has the Freedom Tower, Channel Gardens, the Bowery. We got Gucci, Pucci, Fiorucci, Chanel, Saint Laurent, Bulgari, Tiffany, Fendi, Ferre, Winston, Cartier, Bergdorf's, Van Cleef. We got the harbor. We got the Knicks. We got the best sirloin, the best malteds, the best pastrami, the best New York, New York theme song. We got the best cheesecake. We got New Year's Eve ball drop. Forget Andrew Yang. We got him too, but who cares? We got the stock market, Wall Street, condos, co-ops, skyscrapers, Times Square, Empire State Observatory. New York has skyscrapers, Radio City Music Hall, bridges, tunnels, subways, Four Seasons. We got the opera, the ballet, the foods, the restaurants, the society, the money, the hospitals, the aristocrats, the plastic surgeons, the Christmas tree, Schubert Alley, Best Franks, Best Pizza, the economic capital of the world, and we got Manhattan Clam Chowder, the Civil War site, the Revolutionary War storage. It's where the club sandwich and jello were created. We got ticker tapes. We got parades. We got 24,000 entertainment venues. And we got the Statue of Liberty. And you've got my mouth, except we are now coming up to a quick station break, and then I'll be right back. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. I am about to bring on Bill O'Reilly, whom the entire world knows. He's my guest, and he's my friend, 
and he's probably civilization's best-selling author alive, what with his killing bestseller books, Killing Lincoln, Killing Patton, Killing Marilyn, Killing Jesus. We now have a quickie station to hear him, Bill O'Reilly's new one, Killing the Killers. Can you tell me why this is such a tough book, Bill? Well, the subtitle, I think, tells it all. It's Killing the Killers, A Secret War Against Terrorists. And um, after 9-11, the United States government basically declared war on terrorism. Everybody will remember that. But then uh, they went silent. And uh, the campaign, the military campaign, to wipe out Islamic terrorism is top secret. It's classified. So nobody really knows what's happening. You hear when a major terrorist gets killed, but you don't know how it happened and all of that. And that is what Killing the Killers is all about. We've got a bunch of classified information. We put it in the book. I'll probably go to prison for it. But I think the American people need to know how this war is being waged in their name. Okay. But the stuff we've all read before, all of your fabulous killing books, was all past tense. This is happening right now and could be happening again next week. That is going to make us all very, very nervous. Are you not aware of that? Well, I don't care. I mean, it's not my job as a historian slash journalist uh, if people are nervous. My job is to tell the truth. And this book, Killing the Killers, is the best reporting I've ever done in my entire 46-year career. So we were able to get classified information, as I just said, and weave a narrative about how the United States, with the help of Britain and France and other countries, tracks down and assassinates these Islamic terrorists. It's harrowing, I I admit it. Um, When you read it, you're going to go, am I reading fiction? You're not reading fiction. This is true. And it's going on, as, as you just said, Cindy, even as we speak. Because these Islamic terrorists would love to attack us again. They'd love nothing more than to do that. This is stuff about beheadings. How do you get such details? I know you're not going to tell me exactly, but tell me approximately. How do you get that? Well, what happens is when civilians are murdered, like Daniel Pearl in Pakistan, and we write extensively about Kayla Muller, a young uh, American relief worker who was based in Turkey, got kidnapped and killed in Syria. When that happens, the United States government tracks down the murderers and captures them. Um, And then the murderers, in turn, tell the American authorities what happened and how it happened. That all goes into classified information. Well, we were able to get through that classification and find out what the American internal services uh, got from their interrogations of the jihadists. And so it's not an eyewitness report, but it's a report from the battlefield. The people who who witnessed it uh, told under duress American authorities what happened. The centerpiece is Kayla Muller. She is the young girl who you just spoke about. 
Tell us that story. It's chilling, it's killing, and it's frightening. Yes. Okay, so Kayla was uh, a young girl who wanted to do good, and she uh, graduated college in Arizona, where her parents live, in the Phoenix area. And she uh, went to Turkey to work with Kurdish refugees and other people who have fled to Turkey because of Middle East violence. So while there, she had the opportunity to go into Syria, where ISIS is, all right, to this day, ISIS is in Syria, because there's really no effective Syrian government in the northern part of that country. So ISIS roams around. So Kayla foolishly took that opportunity, drove across the Turkish border, went down to a town in Syria um, with her boyfriend, who was also a relief worker, and they were uh, ostensibly helping out Doctors Without Borders, another charity group. Well, as soon as ISIS sees an American, her boyfriend was not an American, he was a Muslim, um, they will kidnap you. So it, right now, if you go to Syria and you walk around in northern Syria, you'll be kidnapped because ISIS needs money and they hold Americans for ransom. And that's what happened to Kayla. It's so, difficult to have this conversation with her parents. I know that you spoke to them actually. How how did you accomplish that? Well, I, you know, we knew from local news reports um, about Kayla's parents and where they are, and I contacted them, and they know me from television, and they trust me. So I was lucky there. Um, and I said, look, I want to tell your daughter's story, but I need you to give me letters and emails and everything from her that she had sent you. And ISIS was in direct contact with the Mullers because that's how the ransom demands were made. Yeah. So ISIS contacted the Mullers through email and said, you need to pay millions of dollars or your daughter's going to get murdered. Seven million. Yeah. And so we got all that. All right. So the Mueller family was kind enough to give us that. And because they knew that I was trying to stop this, number one. And number two, I wanted their daughter to be known. You know, people forget about this kind of stuff. And al-Baghdadi, the ISIS leader, he had direct control over Kayla Mueller. And so we tell that story. And it is harrowing. There's no doubt about it. It's awful. But it needs to be told. In in this new book, Killing the Killers, what did her parents say if you allowed them to read this book before it came out? It's not coming out until May, but did they read it in advance? Yes, they've read it. They've read the book, um, and I have an email from Mrs. Muller saying that she's uh, very happy with it, and um, that's the highest compliment I could get. You didn't speak to her personally, did you? I email. You know, yeah. I don't want to be intrude. I did. Oh, yes, I did for the research of the book, of course. I had to convince both parents to cooperate with us. Um, and, uh, you know, now we sent her the book as we sent the book to you. And they read it. And they are uh, very, very happy with the way we've reported the situation. And that means everything to me. Tell me about the emails and the correspondence that they allowed you to see. It's sadistic. I mean, these ISIS killers, I mean, it's sadistic. They're telling them 
uh, you know, what they're going to do to Kayla. And if you don't do this, this is going to happen. And I mean, it's really sick. This is a, this crew is beyond redemption. And they, in my opinion, they're getting what they deserve, which is a gory death. I mean, we're tracking these guys down and there's, it's not like come out with your hands up. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know. Are you going to go further and doing something like killing America? Are you going to do something like that next? No, my next book um, will be on, you know what it is. (laughs) Don't tell anybody yet because we don't want the, every time I tell too early, then someone tries to steal the idea. No, I won't talk about it. It's about contemporary culture, but it's not a political book. Tell me, although I know it, but not the audience does, if you've done so many of the killing books, how do you decide on a subject? It's all me. I mean, you know, I run my own shop on television, radio, and in books. So I like to write about things that I want to learn about. So if I don't know a subject very well, like I wanted to know everything about Abraham Lincoln. That was the first killing book, and that is the best-selling of all 11. Uh, killing Lincoln. And I wanted to know the historical Jesus, not the not the Bible Jesus, but what really happened there. And so that's how I pick my um my subjects and in my town on Long Island, Manhasset, where I live, uh scores of people were killed on 9/11 and I know those people. I've watched the children grow up without parents. And so it was very personal to me to find out what the U.S. government is trying to do to right this grievous wrong. And that's why I wrote Killing the Killers. I have a feeling that this might have been the most painful of all the reporting jobs because this is currently in progress now. This is not writing about something that happened hundreds of years ago. This is now. Yeah, it's more personal, but it wasn't painful because I'm glad this is happening. Not, of course, the ISIS murders and the Al-Qaeda murders. That's heinous and horrible. But I'm glad that our country is taking action against these people because all they want to do is kill infidels. That's all they live for. So they shouldn't live because they're going to do it again and again and again and again. And our government is taking very strong action against them. So when people read Killing the Killers, I think there's going to be a bit of satisfaction in the book. Okay. How, look, I write for a living, but how do you write this? Is it on computer? Do you talk it to someone? How do you do it when you're doing such tough subjects? Okay. So I have a co-author, Martin Dugard, who is the primary researcher on the books. Yeah. And what he does is I give him an outline of the book. All right. So this is how we're going to start. This is going to how we're going to end. This is what we want to find out. That's the first thing that happens. It's called an outline. All right. And then Marty and I, he lives in Orange County, California. So we get on the phone talking. We don't email very much. Speaking is better when you're a writer because ideas pop into your head while you're in a conversation. Um, So we go chapter by chapter. This is how we're going to open. So we open Killing the Killers with bin Laden, what really happened and how it happened. 
And then he does the research. He puts it in narrative form, which means he writes sentences about the research. And then I craft it into a story, a narrative, a storyline. And that's how we do it. Okay. Maybe it would appear to me this has been, of all your books, a most painful reporting job. Am I not right? Yeah, I mean, it's painful in the sense that it's it's so bad. Now, yeah. I've covered four wars, so I've seen death. And I mean, I mean, I know what it is. But, you know, to have young people captured and then their heads cut off and Kayla was raped. And I mean, it doesn't get worse than that. Okay. It just doesn't get worse than that. Okay, what's almost as bad as that is that I have to stop the conversation because John Katzmatidis, who owns the station, will knock me off if we don't have a station break. But you are going to come back after the station break because you have something else that you are willing to discuss with me. Is that right? That's right. I'm here. Okay, sweetheart. Let me just do a station break, and then I'm back to you in two minutes. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I am back with Bill O'Reilly, who's about as famous as you can get. Every 20 minutes, he writes a bestseller. He's the most read author in the United States of America and the rest of the world. And he's now scratching another subject which he is willing to let me talk about right now. We are talking a little bit about the awards, and you should excuse the expression because to me it's a dirty word, the Oscars and the awards. What are you doing about the awards? Well, I should write a book called Killing the Oscar, but I'm not going to do that. But I'm interested in, in pop culture, which is your specialty. You've known, you know, every entertainer since Al Jolson, I believe. I mean, you've oh, yeah. written about them and all of that. Well, we in the United States now, in the year 2022, are witnessing a collapse of Hollywood. Yeah. And, and Hollywood is not only an entertainment vehicle for Americans, it defines American culture all over the world. So people in Africa and South America, South Pacific, they know America through movies. It's always been that way. And now Hollywood has killed itself. So we have the upcoming uh, Academy Awards in April. It'll be the lowest watch. Nobody's going to watch it. I think Amy Schumer is the host and two other women, accomplished women. But it doesn't matter. Nobody wants the job. Nobody wants to host the Oscars. I mean, it used to be Bob Hope and Johnny Carson and, you know, big, big celebrities. And that, that was the plum job. Now, I mean, you, you can't even give it to Eminem. Nobody wants it. So you got to ask yourself, why? What has happened in Hollywood? Now, as you know, I'm the executive producer of four movies, all right? Killing Lincoln, Killing Jesus, Killing Kennedy, and Killing Reagan. So I know the Hollywood world. I know how it works. It's nasty. It's always been nasty. Um, very competitive, very tough. But the product used to be really, really good. I look forward to going to movies. I haven't been to the movies, Cindy. In a theater, since the James Bond thing came out, and I hated it. Yeah, I know. And I'm a big James Bond fan. They Have totally you ever... neutered James Bond? He's woke. I don't want a woke James Bond. Okay, and that epitomizes 
what has happened in Hollywood. It's now controlled by virtue signalers, cancel culture people who are basically putting on a line of garbage. Do you remember what the best picture of the year last year was? Do you no. remember? No, I can't remember anything. Okay. Nomad land. Listen, it was lousy. How dare Anybody they do this? See it? It was the awful, most terrible movie. It was garbage. Let me ask you something besides garbage. Have you ever attended an Oscar party? Yes, I attended the Vanity Fair party 10 years ago or something like that. Yeah, well, they all were walking around with getting drunk and showing their Oscars, and Meryl Streep left hers once in the ladies' room after she peed. She peed and walked (laughs) out and left the Oscar damp wherever it was. I mean, that's how much she cared about it. Yeah, when I was at the party, they were all on their best behavior when I was around because they know it's me. And I don't like those Hollywood phonies anyway. I only went to the party because a friend of mine invited me, and then I could get about five or six stories out of the party. Um, But three of the four movies that we produced were nominated for Emmys. So I did go to that Emmy show and uh, a couple of parties afterwards. So I know this world. I know it. Um, and a lot of people really love it, and they're fascinated by it. That's how you make a living. You tell people about the rich and famous. To me, it's just work. It's Listen, an industry, but Meth- an industry in tremendous decline. Methuselah lived 900 years. That was like three weeks before me, but he lived 900 years. He could have lasted another weekend, and still his life would have been shorter than the Oscars. They have gone longer and longer every year. What are they going to do, in your view, this year? Nobody will see it, but they've cut down a lot of the awards, like a best screenwriter for a foreign film made in Albania. They're not going to have that. They're going to give those awards ahead of time and try to get to the awards that people care about, but nobody cares about any of these movies, so it's going to be a disaster. And, you know, that's what's going to happen, no doubt. There was a man a long time ago called Jules Stein who wrote a movie called Three Coins in the Fountain. Trevi Fountain. He said at the time, it wasn't terrific, and yet, he said, I won the Oscar. Awards, he actually said, are dishonest. Do you believe that? Well, I think there's a lot of politics in all these awards. So we're living in a woke, inclusive age now, and you'll see that in the Oscars. Um, What did ABC uh, TV come out and say, hey, we got a bunch of good scripts by white guys, but we're not going to run them because we don't want... People to submit scripts that they're Caucasian. I mean, that's what they got. At least ABC admitted it. Uh, But that's what you're looking at. And and so at this point, it's like the Olympics, you know? It was a huge bomb. Nobody watched. That's what's going to happen to the Academy Awards this year. Well, the hearings have now fallen lower than Jennifer Lopez's bra. Nobody actually watches this stuff anymore at all. Well, I once wrote a piece that said that the Oscars have— have just had 28% of the votes. And Ben Affleck said, you can win with just a very small, tiny percent of the votes. What is it? Are they drunk? Are they people that don't care? Is it now they only want Hungarians with one leg to get awards? Is that it? They have blacks, they have whites, they have people who can't walk. They're going to divide it? Is that what's going to happen? 
Well, look, it's um, whatever is trendy in Hollywood, that's what you see in the award programs. And, you know, it's not like discipline or what the best skill set is in the film and who's the best actor. It's not like that anymore. Um, it's like, okay, I want to go to this restaurant, and I want people to think that I'm very liberal and very woke, so that's what I'm going to do. And it's, uh, it's groupthink out there. I mean, if you're a conservative individual in Hollywood, you better not say anything or you're not going to work. I, I mean, a lot of my friends, they go, look, I can't say anything. If you're a Trump supporter and they find out about it, they being the agents and the people who produce films and TV shows, you won't get hired. Okay, I mean, so what's going wow. to be – what is going to be the future? Is it because of Netflix and streaming? Is that what it is? Or is it that we have gotten tired of what they're producing? What is the reason why nobody cares about this any longer? Because the product isn't any good. So they don't make movies. It's a cliche. They don't make them like they used to. But it's true. If you watch Turner Classic Movies, and I do, um, the films back then, I just watched Guess Who's Coming to Dinner uh, with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. I mean, and Sidney Poitier. It was an amazing film. They were, and then I'm trying to think, is there anybody these days who can act like that, put together no, a film no, like that? No, 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 nor do they care. Everything has to be very careful. But who cares about even the people now? There are too many non-attended movies. And who goes out to a movie theater? You just sit home and you eat popcorn and you watch some dreck that is on television. What is happening to our entertainment industry? Is that what you're going to be writing about? Well, uh, look, if there's a good movie out and you can't get it on streaming, you'll go to the theater. I mean, there are movies that, that attract people in. But there's so few good ones. Look at the ones this year that are nominated for Best Picture. I, I mean, awful. you know, awful. some of them are awful. Fast, some yeah, outside of awful. Belfast, the Branagh movie, which is good. I mean, the rest of them is the, the dog thing in the old West. I'm going. What, what is it? What is this now? You know, come on. I know. I know. Uh, Do you remember when Warren Beatty gave it to the wrong people and the wrong film? Idiot that he is. He handed the Oscar to the wrong people. Did you ever watch that one? Yes, I remember Warren doing that, yeah. Yes, and then there was once John Travolta said, now he's giving it to Adele Dazim. That right. was supposed to be Idina Menzel. Are they drunk? <laughs> Are they on? The Golden Globes is also gone. Why is that gone? Because that was corrupt. Oh, I mean, so they, uh, yeah. there was a lot of behind-the-scenes <laughs> stuff going on there. I understand. Yes, um, okay. But look. In any enterprise, whether it's Cindy Adams' column or Bill O'Reilly doing the news on BillOReilly.com or writing a killing book, if the product is not good, people aren't going to consume it. It's not difficult. It's amazing that these movies even get made because they're so tedious. And they never end. They run like four hours now, right? I mean, yeah. you know, uh, come on. Yeah. And every so, every scene, they're killing, their blood. There, there's a knife, there's a gun, there's a bomb, there's dynamite. Yeah, there's that's no with nice the Chinese sweet, and Pakistani ha- audiences because that's where they make the money overseas. 
And if you don't blow somebody up every 35 seconds overseas, they won't go. They want to see, you know, it's like 35 seconds. All right, blow somebody else up. That's what the audience wants. So that's what they get. Okay, well, I have a feeling that maybe if they put the bathrooms closer to the stage, we might have a shot at sitting through these awful Oscars. And are you going to write about exactly what in the next book that I'm not supposed to know on the air, but I'm asking? It's a fascinating culture look at uh, some individuals that everybody knows. Yeah. And I mean everybody knows. And what their lives were really like. And um, it's a killing book because all of them died in a way that you would not want to die. And um, very fascinating. You're going to love it. Okay. And I love you, and I think it's your turn to take me to dinner. All right. Anywhere you want. That's the kind of guy I am. (laughs) Thank you, Willie. I love you dearly. And I love your book, Killing the Killers. Thank you, thank you, thank you, baby. You're welcome, Cindy. Thanks for having me. Bye. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Here I am back again, the mouth that roared. I have spent my shut-in days collecting reported oddities about some of our reported biggies, like to play a psychic in The Girl, Kate Blanchett prepped by visiting a seer who said electrical things won't work around me. Kate plugged in her own tape recorder. It wouldn't operate. A second recorder wouldn't work either. Convinced something's wrong with the room's wiring, she waited. The seer exited. Kate tried again. Same socket. All the appliances. All worked. Scottish Daily Record has reported that Madonna learned to play chess. She took lessons from a Scottish champ named Alan Norris. And per the San Francisco Chronicle, regular customer Ashley Judd was visiting her godmother in Pacific Heights. When she got there, she called a local spa called Spa Radiance, and she ordered a massage for three hours. Jane Krakowski told Fitness Magazine, My favorite body part is my butt. I wish I could walk backward into a room. Vera Wang, when she was asked about weddings, told InStyle Magazine, Tightened, Tighten your tummy with a cincher made of nylon, lycra, and spandex. Keep ceremonies on the short side. Do not put older relatives on the dance floor, no matter what you do. The Daily Mail in London, Hugh Grant always wanted to be a rock star, who was sent, he said, women's undies. He confessed he'd been sent underwear once by a man and he wishes the man would stop, but he says he's too polite to say anything. I'm too polite to say what I think about him. Listen, Lara Flynn Boyle told TV Guide, My mom has this picture of me as a kid next to Bozo the Clown. 
I'm holding my skirt up because I got so terrified when Bozo put his arm around me that I wet myself. I mean, these are our celebrities we're holding up to adoring them. They're like everybody else. They make mistakes. Jennifer Love Hewitt said, quote, I have always personally wanted an office. I wanted to work in one. My dream growing up was to be a secretary. So believe it or not, I still bring post-its with me to work. And I just write people messages on them like so-and-so called, and I send them the post-its instead of phoning them. I know it sounds dorky. Yeah, right. Shaquille O'Neal. He is known to walk around with blue, E-L-U-E, toenails, the color being platinum sky blue. Why? Because he stubbed his toe night, and his mother applied a little nail hardener to ease the pain. It turned blue-ish. That same night, Shaq scored 46 points, and he now uses that color nail polish for good luck. Pierce Brosnan. He once had to reshoot his 007 sex scene 18 times because the actress, whose name was Sophie Marceau, her nipples popped into view. The world is not enough. That was the name of the movie, and the producers desperately wanted to give it a PG rating. Says Pierce Brosnan, this was excruciatingly technical. Eighteen takes, and still trying to make a love scene look spontaneous. It infuriated me. Yeah, probably exhausted him also. David Mamet's advice to a newcomer playwright. The tough part isn't the writing. The tough part is putting the ideas in a drawer and telling someone you have put them away for several months and then you waited these three months before giving it to a producer or a studio. Once they know you put it away, they thought you've really gotten something for their money or they have gotten something for their money because you were preserving it. Ah, after Mission to Mars, which starred Gary Sinise, Tim Robbins and Don Cheadle got lousy reviews, and Brian De Palma told Variety, In outer space, the good thing is nobody can hear anybody's screams of its lousy or how bored and boredom they are watching it. I'm going on. I'm going on. As recorded in the mirror, Arnold Schwarzenegger was in London's Dorchester Hotel. In advance, his people sent what he required. He required hot cereal made with water, not milk, every morning. A healthy side selection of walnuts and raisins. He wanted a dish of low-fat 
treats to be included. He wanted biscuits, sliced sweets, a king-size bed, plus two, not one, two fitness machines, and he demanded 14-hour access to the gym. He also requested they bring up Cohiba cigars and in the fridge stock it with crystal champagne, plus, in case he was thirsty, apple and pear brandy. And he wanted 13 different meals that were to include grilled chicken, salmon, swordfish available 24 hours a day, plus beluga caviar, strawberries without stems, you should know, and sushi. Also, he wanted a chess board on the sitting room coffee table. Okay. Well, Chris Rock, I'm going to go on. Chris Rock. Chris Rock said he loves gory movies. I love the horror and blood. I love great thrillers. And I thought to take that up a notch and to delve deeper into the psychological and suspense thriller elements. We got traps, we got gore, we got armament, we got story, but we have to have characters that will keep people guessing about who's going to stab who. Yeah, it sounds nice. He said, my first idea was, what if I was a cop who woke up in a trap or I had one hand chained to a pipe and a saw in the other? This was my idea of a movie. Everybody got excited about what this movie could be. I told them, I'll handle my detective story part. You guys handle the gore because you do it better. Anyway, he says, I wanted to write a frightening cop movie that works without jokes. My job on set is to add comedy spice to some of my lines. And Chris wants to be in it, and he wants Samuel L. Jackson to be with him because he said Samuel L. Jackson is great and raises every film to a whole new level. Says Samuel L. Jackson, me too. I'm a fan of horror movies. I love gore. It's a call I couldn't resist when I was offered one. And who wouldn't want to hang with Chris Rock for a few weeks? Okay, now let me tell you, our people are getting older, not just tired or older. Jane Fonda, 83. Ellen Burstyn, 88. Liam Neeson, 69. Helen Mirren, 75. Morgan Freeman, 84. Harrison Ford, 78. Alan Arkin, 87. Co-emoting with Michael Douglas, 77 in September. So I am saying that creaking along is Dolly Parton, 75. Patti Smith, 75. Bruce Springsteen, 72. Jill Biden, well, her schmatas alone are 200 years old, those terrible dresses she wears. Martha Stewart is 80 in August. 
Mitt Romney is 74. Mitch McConnell is 79. And for all of them on their next birthday, maybe a colonoscopy. Listen, guys, I've loved you. And I'm going away for a week in Maine to rest my bones. So anyway, tune me in. I will be back next week with whatever I can put together. And after that, I will be back forever and ever and ever and ever. And I love you. And thanks for listening. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.